Welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Today, you are going to learn how to outsmart emotional eating and live a life of happiness and joy without giving up the foods you love. Now, here is Dr. Nina. Hi there. Welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. I'm a psychoanalyst, and I am here to help you liberate yourself from emotional eating, take back control of your life, and feel good in your body, all without dieting, spending hours in the gym, or counting a single calorie, carb, or fat gram. Today's topic is your secret weapon against binge eating disorder. Actually, two secret weapons, self-care and self-compassion. Let me tell you more about that. But first, a question. Are you sick and tired of struggling with food and weight? Do you constantly criticize yourself? Maybe you're always judging your body, criticizing your eating habits and your life choices, and just nothing you do is good enough or right. If that sounds familiar, you're not alone. Many people are stuck in a cycle of negative self-talk that leads to eating, emotional eating to comfort yourself, to get away from your own mean voice, which then leads to more self-criticism and the cycle just continues. The good news, it is possible to break this cycle. The key to stopping binge eating for good is turning self-criticism into something more productive and helpful, self-compassion. By cultivating an attitude free of judgment towards ourselves, we can break free from the guilt and shame around food and weight issues or anything else that causes that kind of self-negativity. So today I'm going to show you how turning self-criticism into self-compassion is a crucial part of creating a happier, binge-free life. And we're going to also talk about self-care. And by the way, you can do this. You can create that binge-free happy life without ordering endless boring salads and missing out on your favorite food, without eliminating carbs from your diet or wasting time and money on yet another workout plan or constantly planning your meals or vowing to be good with food. So the first step to challenging these these self-critical ideas is to identify them. Often, we don't even realize we're being self-critical. We think we're being motivational or realistic. So first, we have to identify these self-critical thoughts and consider where they came from, these thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. They came from somewhere. So as an example, let me tell you about Ileana. She constantly referred to herself as stupid and such an idiot whenever she talked about her life. She prefaced a lot of of statements with comments like, oh, I'm sure this is going to sound stupid, or I know this is so stupid, or I know this sounds ridiculous, right? Constant disclaimers. But the reality is she did not sound stupid at all. Ileana was bright, thoughtful, and insightful. But as a child, her older brothers were always telling her how stupid she was and putting her down. She was the baby of the family, the only girl, the little girl darling, and they just did not miss an opportunity to make her feel bad. And her parents never objected or intervened. They just thought, oh, kids are being kids. And Ileana interpreted their silence as agreement. So from her perspective as a child, her brothers thought she was stupid. Her family never said anything. So therefore, it must be the truth. She must, in fact, be 
stupid. And she started being mean to herself, believing she wasn't smart enough, issuing those disclaimers whenever she shared a, an insight or an opinion. You know, she, I, she'd say, I, I know this probably sounds really ridiculous, or I know this sounds dumb, or I know this must be completely idiotic. She was constantly apologizing for her thoughts. So for Ileana, recognizing that she'd internalized the perspective of her older brothers or that she had um, interpreted what was going on as, as, as uh, really an indictment against her intelligence was really eye-opening. It was a light bulb moment for her. So we explored what she would say to someone else who was teased and really bullied by her older brothers, someone who had developed negative beliefs about herself. And Ileana said that she would totally have compassion for that person and she would want to reassure them of their likability and their lovability. Her challenge was to develop that for herself. Developing that kind of insight and compassion is an is an an essential part of, of actually creating self-compassion. It involves awareness of the unconscious hidden thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that drive our, our sense of self and then challenging those beliefs. So insight allows us to understand ourselves more fully and to make more conscious choices in our lives, including with food. So here's a tip, reflect on your past your past experiences and relationships, and consider how they shaped your opinion of yourself without judgment. Be curious, not critical. Curious, not critical is, is everything. Developing a, 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 an attitude of curiosity helps you find answers. When you're critical to yourself, all you do is shut yourself down and then you feel bad and you can't shut yourself down and criticize yourself and simultaneously lift yourself up and make yourself feel better, that's where food comes in. So it's very important to really have that attitude of curiosity. All right. So the other, the other thing to do to develop self-compassion besides developing insight is, is to identify the hidden triggers because our unconscious thoughts and beliefs drive our beliefs about ourselves or drive our, our conscious beliefs about ourselves. That means we're not always aware of why we think the things we think, why we believe the things we believe, or why we do the things we do. We simply just repeat self-defeating patterns or hold ideas about ourselves that are, are familiar and that, that makes them seem true. What's familiar seems true, but they are usually untrue. As with Ileana, you can trace those old patterns back to your earlier or earliest experiences and your relationships. And sometimes our families cast us in roles we never auditioned for, like the role of the problem child, the stupid one, the underachiever, the difficult one, the dramatic one, the sensitive one. Oh, that's a common one. You're so sensitive. Hmm. Just, just want to comment on the you're so sensitive is often people are told they're too sensitive and they think that they have really, that they're oversensitive, but really they're just having normal reactions to situations, but they're in a family or situation that labels that as oversensitive. So it's not that you're oversensitive or too sensitive. It's that people are too insensitive to you. 
So there are all these family myths, some family stories that become our narrative about ourselves. And our earliest relationships form the basis for so much of our current dynamics and relationships. So fear of intimacy, that can be rooted in past experiences of rejection or abandonment. And once we understand where this comes from, we can develop healthier patterns of relating to other people. So developing insight is not always easy because it involves willingness to explore difficult and often painful emotions. It's easier to diet. Let's face it. It is easier to count calories, carbs, and fat grams and think about food all the time and think about what you're going to eat or not eat than it is to think about what may be eating at you or weighing on you. It is challenging to, to face the parts of ourselves we've been trying to avoid or deny. It's hard to recognize that our difficulties in the present may be rooted in past experiences we may not remember or understand. It is hard. But you know what? Anything worth doing is difficult. Anything worth doing is challenging. And when you work through these root reasons that lead to whatever's going on with food and you dig out those roots, you're done. You're liberated. You're good. Binge eating or stress eating or emotional eating or whatever kind of dysfunctional eating behavior is, is bothering you, it's, it becomes a thing of the past because you no longer need it as a coping strategy. And that's why, yes, it is harder. It is harder to do this work than it is to diet or focus on food. But if you only focus on what you're eating, you're going to stay in that diet binge cycle forever. When you focus on what is eating at you, what is weighing on you and work to heal yourself and cultivate new ways of relating to yourself and therefore to food, that is liberation. That means you leave binge eating behind forever. So consider what past experiences have influenced the way you see yourself in the present. And by the way, let, let me just say something about the past versus the present, because I get asked a lot, oh my gosh, why do we have to talk about the past? The past is in the past. So lots of people think that the past is over and they see no point in going over their history. So for example, when, when Kara started therapy, she was adamant. She did not want to talk about the past. She said, I talked about my family for 10 years with my last therapist. Nothing ever changed. I still struggle with binging. I don't want to talk about the past. Now, talking about the past in the context of, oh, this happened long ago will not help. I mean, yes, you have to go through it to heal, but talking about it over and over and over and over is not helpful. I absolutely agree with Kara. It is not helpful to talk only about the past as if it happened only in the past. But here's the thing. We have to look at how the past influences our present because we are haunted by the past. The past haunts our present. It impacts our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with food. So in Kara's case, she was an only child of parents who were in the film industry. They were often on location. They left her with nannies. And Kara often felt lonely and rejected. So she took up baking as a kid. And during those lonely times without her parents, she comforted herself with baked goods. And as an adult, 
she had a series of relationships with unavailable men who did not make her a priority. Sound familiar? Just like her parents. So whenever she felt sad about her relationships with these unavailable sort of half in, half out um, guys, she ate for comfort. And Kara believed that if she only lost weight, these men would want to be with her. Unbeknownst to herself, she had duplicated the original relationship with her parents with these guys. Whereas once she, she longed for absent parents and hoped that they would choose her, now she longed to be chosen by emotionally unavailable men. So recognizing how she was repeating her past insight allowed Kara to feel compassion for herself. And we began healing the wounds of the past. So instead of being drawn to unavailable men, she started going out with guys who actually were available and interested in her. She no longer felt that she had to uh, uh, convince unavailable people to want her, which is how she felt with her parents. She now could allow herself to have people and be with people who did want her. She stopped binging because she stopped being lonely and she stopped being hungry for love, starving for attention. And she actually recently got engaged to a really great guy. So yay, see what happens when you actually look back and see how your past is haunting your present. When you do some ghost busting, get rid of the ghosts of the past, come to terms and heal the past. You don't have to repeat it in the present, even if you're repeating it unconsciously. So to change the present, you really have to be a time traveler. No DeLorean time travel machine needed. Okay, Back to the Future, one of the better movies ever of my childhood. <laughs> okay, I digress. All right, so our earlier experiences and relationships can have a profound effect on how we see ourselves and how we relate to other people. And these past interactions also shape our sense of self. It shapes our self-esteem. And it influences, as you could see in Kara, her, her choice of guy, it influences our relationship choices, not just romantic relationships. Sometimes, you know, people choose friends who are similar to relationships from their, their families. And it doesn't have to be parents. It could be siblings. It could be a, uh, anyone who was close to you that there were, where there was a problem in the relationship. Sometimes we, we try to resolve the early relationship with a, a new person who's like the original person, but we don't even realize it. Once we realize it, you know, it's hidden, it's unconscious, but once it comes into our conscious awareness and we realize it, now we can do something about it. So when we look into the past, we find clues about the present. Um, kids who experience trauma or neglect they blame themselves for the trauma and the neglect, or they come to believe that they're not worthy of love or care. Or a child who grows up with parents who constantly compare them to other people can develop a sense of inadequacy. Sometimes that's parents comparing them to other uh, another sibling, or sometimes it's comparing it to, to cousins or uh, someone who lives down the street or, or what have you. Always being compared can make you feel unfa unfavorably compared, may I say can make you develop a sense of inadequacy and not good enoughness. And these beliefs can become so deeply ingrained 
and they contribute to a pattern of self-criticism that persists into adulthood. So if someone is, for example, comparing you unfavorable, unfavorably to other people, oh, it's very nice that you, you know, you got into uh, UC Davis, but, you know, so-and-so went to Harvard. <laughs> How are you going to feel? Not so good. The reality is nobody is born hating themselves or being self-critical. We learn to relate to ourselves in this harsh way, right? We learn it. Children who grow up with critical or emotionally unavailable parents or who grow up in family families where there's a, just a basic misattunement, like uh, uh, like people uh, off the top of my head, uh, someone, I know someone who was, is very, she loves reading. She, she, there's nothing she loves better than just curling up with a good book. And she's artistic and creative. And, and these are the things she loves to do. She loves to knit. She loves to do all these things. But her family, they're all very sporty. And, and they all wanted to go play sports and games and things like that. Just, it just There was nothing wrong with playing sports or games, just as if there's nothing wrong with preferring to read a good book. But she just felt uh, a sense of not being understood and not fitting in and somehow not being like other people made her feel bad about herself. And so she grew up always feeling like the outsider, always feeling like there was something wrong with her because she wasn't like the other people instead of learning to honor, hey, you like sports? I like to read. <laughs> Different strokes, right? Um, so we interpret our environment in a way that is often to our detriment. And we can come to believe that we're not good enough or that we have to be different or perfect in order to be loved or lovable. And these beliefs really stick and they get carried into adulthood and they lead to a persistent pattern of self-criticism. So what was once between you and other people, other people criticizing you now becomes you criticizing yourself. And self-criticism can take many forms. It can, it can mean self-judgment, negative self-talk, a tendency to focus on real or perceived flaws or shortcomings. And often that critical voice takes over. It becomes very loud and very mean and very harsh, and it makes us feel very bad. And then we, we end up eating or binging just to escape the loud inner critic in our minds. But once you identify how you came to treat yourself so poorly, whose voice are you actually using when you're criticizing yourself? The next step is to actively cultivate and develop self-compassion. So here's how to be more self-compassionate. Some are things to not do and some are things to do. So here's one to not do. Stop mind reading. Building self-awareness and self-compassion means becoming more conscious of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And when we're in challenging situations, we often have automatic thoughts or reactions that are based on past experiences that we attribute to other people. So, for example, Ileana, um, she often believed that other people thought she was stupid. She thought she was stupid. Her brother said she was stupid. Her parents didn't say anything. She must be stupid. So she just assumed... Other people 
thought or knew that she just was not the brightest bulb in the, what is it? Not the brightest star in the sky. What is it? Not the brightest bulb in the, I, I actually don't know how to finish that. Someone write me and tell me. All right. So n- no, nobody, nobody told her that she was stupid since her brothers teased her as a kid, but she was certain that everybody perceived her this way because she thought it. And this is a, a, a form of, of a defense mechanism, a mechanism actually called mind reading uh, that many of us, in fact, most of us engage in without even realizing it. So if you've ever thought something like, oh, they probably think, mm, or, oh, I can tell they're judging me. I can tell she doesn't like me. I know they're upset with me. If you've ever had similar thoughts and no one has ever said the thing that you think they're thinking, that's mind reading. Remember, you are not psychic. You don't actually know what someone is thinking unless they articulate their words. Maybe they're not thinking the worst of you. Maybe they're thinking the best or somewhere in between, or maybe they're not thinking about you at all. But mind reading is often when we imagine that other people are having the thoughts that we have about ourselves. So if you're critical and judgmental of yourself, you might be mind reading others and thinking that they are having the same kind of critical, judgmental thoughts that you're having about yourself. So that's something not to do. Here's something to do, to develop self-compassion. Talk to yourself as you would talk to a friend. The next time you find yourself being hard on yourself, imagine what you would say to a friend or a loved one in a similar situation. For example, Blake, Blake ate an entire pizza in one night and got really upset. And Blake said, oh, I am disgusting. I have no willpower. I have no control. I can't believe how I keep doing this to myself. What's wrong with me? Not very nice, right? I asked Blake what they'd say to a friend or loved one who had also eaten a whole pizza in one night. And Blake immediately answered, oh, well, I tell my friend to be curious about why they ate the pizza. I tell them there had to be a reason and they should use this as an opportunity to understand themselves better. And I'd also tell them it's only pizza. It's not like they did something really horrible. It's not an actual crime. Food crimes are not actually crimes. So notice how easily Blake found compassion towards this friend, but but struggled to be equally compassionate towards themselves. Often we can be harsh, critical, and hateful towards ourselves. Just mean, hateful, vicious, terrible. Yet we would react completely differently towards someone else in a similar situation. So if you wouldn't say it to a friend, a child, or someone you love, don't say it to yourself. Treat yourself, speak to yourself as you would talk to someone that that you care about. Speak to yourself as if you are someone you care about. Be someone you care about. Self-compassion means treating ourselves with the same kindness, care, and understanding that we would offer others who are going through a tough time. And that means responding with empathy, understanding, and a non-judgmental attitude. All right. 
Next thing to do to cultivate self-compassion is to take care with your language. Um, as an example, Beth. So Beth, every day she would go into the bathroom, she would look in the mirror and she would say to her reflection, you're gross. You are so gross. So I, I requested that she alter her language a little bit. And I said, will you rephrase that? But say, I'm gross instead of you're gross. And you know what? She couldn't do it. She found it too harsh. And she was right, right? And that, why, why could she say, you're gross? But she couldn't say, I'm gross? Because when we use the pr pronoun you to talk to ourselves, it usually means our inner critic has taken control of our thoughts. Any negative self-talk, such as, you're not good enough. You're going to fail. They don't like you is an indication that our inner critic is speaking. And this voice, again, it just makes us feel bad, leading us to resort to eating as a means of escaping our inner critic and comforting ourselves. Instead, we need to support ourselves by asking questions. Curious, not critical. Asking questions. Hey, what's going on with me? What do I need right now? You know, really get curious and, and, and speak positively to yourself. Encourage yourself. Say things like, you know what? I'm capable. I'm, I've, I've got this. I like me. I know I can get through this. I've gotten through challenges before. I can, I, I can get through this too. I, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to take my own side. So practice speaking to yourself only in that first person I voice. And also be sure to use a soothing, understanding tone, because the way we talk to ourselves makes a difference. Uh, I, I, I remember this person who said that, you know, they, they tried talking to themselves and it didn't work at all, not at all. This whole business with self-talk, it was bogus, <laughs> just was not having it, right? So I asked them, hey, tell me what you said to yourself and how you said it. And basically, this person was feeling bad, and they said to themselves, it's okay, you're going to be all right. Just like that. It's okay, you're going to be all right. Well, can you imagine saying that to a friend who is really struggling? It's okay, you're going to be all right. Well, that wouldn't help, would it? So no wonder this person didn't feel better. They were talking as if they were uh, like, like devoid of emotion, like a robot, like, a, like at a funeral. But you could say the same words with a different tone and it has a whole different feeling. You say, it's okay, I'm gonna be all right. Or even, it's okay, you're, you're, you're gonna be all right. It has a different feeling. So a, 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 a kind, soothing tone is like a verbal hug, right? So, um, so, so far we've talked about that the secret weapon against binge eating is self-compassion. Uh, you have to learn to address the, the critical thoughts, identify the hidden triggers, recognize where it comes from in the past. And then we're starting to talk about how to cultivate self-compassion. Stop mind reading, talk to yourself as if you were a friend, and watch the way you talk to yourself. Watch your tone. Uh, we're going to break for a, uh, uh, we're going to take a break for a commercial. And when I come back, I'm going to tell you more strategies of how to cultivate self-compassion and also self-care. I'll be back soon. 
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you tired of the endless cycle of dieting and binging? Ready to break free from emotional eating and regain control of your life? Look no further than The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina, the transformative radio show that will empower you on your journey to food freedom. Dr. Nina is here to guide you every step of the way. Join her as she delves into the true causes of binge eating, uncovers hidden triggers, and gives you effective strategies for lasting change. With practical tips and inspiring stories of transformation, The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina will help you nurture a healthier mindset, embrace self-compassion, and rediscover your true self. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Have questions for Dr. Nina? Join her on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now back to the show. Welcome back to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. We're talking about your secret weapon against binge eating, self-compassion. And we've been talking about self-compassion before the break. I talked about how you have to stop mind reading and start talking to yourself as if you were a friend and someone you care about, including the way that you talk to yourself and using a soothing tone, right? A, A soothing tone is like a verbal hug. So watch your language in a different way and watch your tone in a different way. Be then is usually, you know, watch your language usually means don't swear, but watch the language you talk to yourself in. Be nice and be kind. All right. Another way to develop self-compassion is to get out of your comfort zone. You've probably heard the meme, nothing ever changes inside your comfort zone. That's true. And that's why it's essential to learn to tolerate a little discomfort. And we do this by identifying difficult emotions without judging them and learning to respond to ourselves in a new way. Criticizing yourself can be a distraction from uncomfortable feelings. It's easier for many of us to to distract by attacking ourselves and then be disappointed with ourselves. Oh my God, I can't believe I ate that. I'm so disappointed with myself. How could I? Mm -mm. 
than to tolerate the reality that we might be upset with other people. We might be disappointed in other people. That's hard. The more comfortable you can be with being uncomfortable, the less likely you will be to use self-criticism or binging as a means of distraction from difficult thoughts and feelings about other areas of your life. So recognize that certain prohibitive or scary, uh, upsetting thoughts about other people or situations may fuel your own self-criticism. Another thing to do to, to cultivate self-compassion is get rid of the guilt. Guilt can fuel self-criticism. Guilt fuels negative self-talk. It leads to a sense of unworthiness and self-doubt. We feel guilty about things that we've done, like, oh, we ate all the Girl Scout cookies, or about things we're not doing, like going to the gym. And there are different types of guilt. So depletion guilt refers to the sense of, you know, feeling guilty about doing something for ourselves or meeting our own needs because it feels like we're depleting other people. We're taking something away from other people. So that's depletion guilt. If I, if I do this, that person isn't going to get what they want as if you don't matter, but you do matter. Uh, Self-guilt is the guilt we feel just for being or existing in the world, just for having any needs. And the sense is that by needing anything, food, nurturing, comfort, security, love, these are needs that that by recognizing that we have needs, we're somehow exposing some deficiency in ourselves. We may even believe it's fundamentally wrong to have needs or, or wants. So when we experience guilt, it's because we feel as if we've fallen short of our own expectations or those of others. And that leads to a negative self-image, leads to seeing ourselves as unworthy or inadequate, and then we become hypercritical of ourselves. We focus on, on these perceived flaws or real flaws. We all have flaws uh, or perceived weaknesses. We berate ourselves for mistakes. We, we are just harsh and super critical of ourselves. So to break free from the cycle of self-criticism that arises from guilt, practice self-compassion. Be kind and understanding to yourself, recognizing that nobody is perfect. And how boring would that be, right? If everyone was perfect, I, I, that would be a boring world. That would be a boring Barbie, Barbie world if you saw the first 10 minutes of the new Barbie movie. Um, so let's just normalize guilt and regret and put it in perspective. Otherwise, you can feel guilty over eating or over what you weigh rather than feeling guilty about other things in your life. If you don't feel guilty, if these just become you know, thoughts, feelings, needs, reactions, without the guilt, you don't displace guilt onto food. Also, really important to flip the switch on negative self-talk. Really important. Shift the way you think about and talk to yourself. So instead of putting yourself down and criticizing your flaws and your shortcomings, focus on what you like about you. Focus on the positive aspects of yourself, your strengths, your accomplishments. You have them. We find the evidence we look for. If we look for evidence that we're not good enough, oh, we will find it. But if we look for evidence 
that we are good enough, that we are likable, lovable, smart, nice, fun, all those things, good to be around, we will find it. The problem is we often don't look for that evidence. We only look for the negative. So start giving yourself some credit for the things that you've done well in your life, the things you're doing well in your life. Give yourself credit for the, the positive qualities you know you have. By praising yourself, as maybe you do others, by praising yourself, you can cultivate a more positive and affirming view of yourself. And I don't, I'm not talking about mantras. I'm talking about reframing. So let me give you some examples. Um, so like a critical voice might say, I never get anything right. I'm, I'm a total failure. That's a critical voice. A reframing that, flipping the script is, you know what? I've made some mistakes in my life. Yes, it's true. I have. And I've also had some successes. It is okay to make mistakes. I learn from them. And, you know, I'm going to focus on the successes and on what I learned from the mistakes that I made. So there are no mistakes, really, are there? A critical voice might say, um, I'm not good enough to take this on. I'll never be able to do it right. Reframing that, flip, flipping the script is, you know what? I've got the ability to learn new things. I have learned things in the past. I have done this before. I've learned the things in the past and I, I'm going to just do my best. And I'm going to keep trying until I get it right, until, I, until it, I'm where I want to be. Notice the difference? Critical voice. Um, let, let's use that, that critical voice uh, pronoun. You're never going to find a partner. You're just going to be alone forever. Critical voice is so mean. Reframe. Switch to the, the first person voice. I have had some bad experience in dating and in relationships. So that is true. Yes, I have. And I've also had some good ones. And I'm going to keep putting myself out there until I find the right person for me. More hopeful, right? And more realistic. Often the critical voice imagines this dismal future. Nothing's ever going to go right. And then you react in the present and have reactions about a future that doesn't exist and may well not exist. Another one. Uh, uh I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. Reframe would be, okay, I made a mistake, but that doesn't mean I'm stupid. Those things are, are not correlated here. I'm going to take responsibility for my mistake and I'm going to do better in the future. I'm going to figure out how I came to make that mistake and I'm going to learn from it. Critical voice. I'll never be able to stop binging. I've been doing it all my life. 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I've been doing it all my life. I'm always going to do it. It's never going to change. Reframe. It is challenging to create change, but I am working to understand why I'm turning to food and I am learning a new way to respond to myself. I'm going to celebrate my progress along the way. By reframing self-criticism, you challenge those negative beliefs about yourself and you cultivate a more positive and self-affirming and realistic mindset. Remember Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman? She said, "Why is I'm paraphrasing a bit. Why? Why is? Why are the bad things always so e much easier to believe? 
Why do we always believe the bad things? Why do we always believe the bad things? Because we learn to do that. But when you change your filter, when you change your mental filter, and it's not, oh, instead of seeing the bad things, see only the good things. It's, okay, there are some qualities I want to change. And there's some qualities about myself I really like and appreciate. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold both. That is a more realistic and balanced view of yourself, which is what we do with our friends. We don't we don't say, oh, you know what? My friend really disappointed me. So you know what? I'm done. She's a terrible friend uh, uh, because of this, and I'm I'm no longer speaking to her. We we would we would not say that. We would say, oh, so upset with my friend. She's really pissing me off, or he's really bugging me. But you know what? I love them overall. And this friendship is worth it. We'd have a more balanced view. We have more balanced view of everybody in our lives. Why don't we do that for ourselves? That's what I'm suggesting. Because when we're harsh and critical towards ourselves, we feel shame, guilt, depression, anxiety, and self-doubt. And those feelings are so overwhelming. And they, they lead to negative coping strategies like binge eating, to escape and silence, even momentarily, that horrible inner critic. So self-compassion is a powerful tool to combat the self-criticism that leads to binging. And by being kind and understanding to yourself, you feel better, and that has a big impact on your overall well-being. And when you feel better, you're not going to use food to cope because you're, you, you know how to cope. Binging is a frenemy. It is doing something for you. It is helping you cope. It is comforting you. It is distracting you. It is expressing something. It's doing something for you. It's helping you soothe, escape, numb, whatever. But of course, it's an it's it's an enemy in that it hurts your self-esteem, your sense of self, not good for you physically, and it's definitely more of an enemy than it is a friend. But if you just try to do something different, like if you stop binge, if you can't stop binging until you cultivate a change in the way you respond to yourself. Binging is the solution to the problem. If it's a solution to self-criticism, then you need to find a new solution. And when you find a new solution to self-criticism, when you change your relationship with yourself, you stop binging. All right. Um, another way to, to, to treat ourselves compassionately is to cultivate self-care. And that can mean different things to different people. When they hear the term self-care, uh, lots of different things may come to mind. For example, Hildy, Hildy considered herself the queen of self-care. She actually said that. I'm the queen of self-care, she told me. And she said, so why am I still binging? Why am I so so miserable if I'm the queen of self-care? Okay, so here, here is what, you know, the, the queen of self-care considered self-care. She got regular mani-pedis. She got massages. She got facials. She got her hair blown out every week. And yet she still had feelings of depression and worthlessness. Um, and she wondered why she felt so bad since she was taking such good care of herself. Well, what she didn't realize is that true self-care is more than just grooming, which is what she was doing. Self-care, self-care means taking care of yourself in all areas of your life. It means considering what you want and what you need, which can be different for everyone. 
Some people find meditation brings them inner peace. Others like physical activities like running or hiking or walking or working out. And for other people, self-care means giving themselves quiet time, reading a book, watching a good show, journaling. So it can mean all of those things. Self-care, often we think of ourselves as just our bodies, but there is so much more to us than our physical selves. And we need to feed those parts, if you will, nurture and nourish those parts. Um, so self-care can look different for everyone, but it is always about refocusing and reconnecting with yourself. So taking care of yourself is a way of recognizing that you're worthy of care and attention. And the goal of self-care is to build um, uh, resilience and create balance in our lives that helps us cope with the challenges of life. And the more we do that, the more that we cope, the less we turn to other ways of coping, like binging, overspending, other negative coping strategies. And there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about self-care that prevent us from prioritizing our own needs, and uh, including, by the way, the idea that it is selfish to prioritize our needs. So I want to go over some of these myths. I think I have time to get through a few of them. Um, let's see how far we get. All right, so five myths. Myth number one, self-care is selfish. So despite the fact that we recognize self-care is important, we also often label it as selfish. And one reason for this is this uh, cultural emphasis on productivity and achievement. We're supposed to be human doings, right, in this culture. Do, 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 accomplish. We live in a society that values hard work, values success um, more than anything sometimes, and often at the expense of your personal well-being. Taking time for self-care can be seen as indulgent, something like that, especially if it means taking time away from work or other responsibilities. So this leads to guilt over wanting to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others sometimes. Um, another reason that self-care is mistaken for selfishness is this expectation that we still have in the 21st century around gender roles. Despite the fact that here we are well into the 21st century, women are often still expected to prioritize the needs of others over their own needs. And they often feel guilty or selfish for taking the time to care for themselves. I was just visiting my parents and my, we were talking about when we lived in London when I was a kid and my dad said, oh, remember when I used to uh, babysit you and, you know, your mom would go to all these, uh, go, go to all like three plays in, in a row <laughs> on a Saturday or whatever. And I was so struck by that babysit babysit us. No, you were actually being a dad. You were parenting us. But that idea of, no, no, you're babysitting your own children. No, you're not babysitting your own children. You're actually looking after your own children. So that attitude still persists. And this gendered societal expectation leads many women to feel like they've got to choose between taking care of themselves or taking care of others. And that leads to stress and anxiety and guilt as opposed to you can take care of yourself and take care of others. You have to create balance. And all too often, the frustration about this dilemma ends up getting 
symbolically stuffed down. And then we get mad at ourselves for what we're eating, how much we ate, what we weigh, when the true source of the anger is the social constraint and prohibition against self-care for women. So let me just take a moment also and, and distinguish between selfishness, selflessness, and self-care. So what is, what is selfishness? Selfishness is an attitude or behavior that prioritizes someone's needs and desires over the needs of and desires of other people more often than not. Selfish people act in ways that benefit themselves. They don't think about how their actions impact other people or they don't care. So selfish people have an attitude of what's the world doing for me lately rather than considering how they may be affecting others or what what others may need. So examples of of selfish behavior mean, you know, include like, you know, taking more than your fair share of whatever or putting your own needs ahead of the needs of others or refusing to compromise, refusing to collaborate with other people. Selfish people hurt other people. Now, the opposite of selfishness is being too selfless, which is also detrimental, also not good. So let me give you an example of, of, of someone who was selfless. And this is, this is Lily. And she, she took a cruise to Mexico with some girlfriends. And the whole time they were on this cruise, her friends had no idea that Lily was terrified of water and terrified of, of, of taking a, a ship. Like she saw Poseidon adventure when she was a kid and it completely freaked her out. So the whole time she's on this cruise with her friends, they have no idea how she really feels. She managed to hide her lifelong fear of water and of cruise ships. And she struggled to get through every day you know, and every day at dinner, she'd be thinking, is the wave coming? Is the ship going to be turned upside down? What's going to happen? You know, she did not enjoy this vacation. And when, when I asked her, well, why didn't, why did you go on a cruise? Like, why didn't you tell your friends, like, let's pick somewhere else to go on our friend vacation? And she said she didn't want to spoil the experience for her friends because they were so excited at the idea of taking a cruise. And Lily thought it would be selfish of her to deny them the pleasure of the cruise. So by being overly considerate of her friends, she neglected herself. So being overly selfless means neglecting your own needs, neglecting or ignoring what, what you need for your own well-being in order to prioritize the needs of other people. And while selflessness is generally seen as a positive trait in certain contexts, when it's an extreme or when it is uh, happening all the time, um, it leads to neglecting yourself and feeling empty. So by pleasing others, Lily put herself through a miserable vacation. And by the way, selflessness is often linked to the trauma response of fawning. Trauma responses are fight, flight, freeze and fawn, which is a coping mechanism that means placating or pleasing others in, in, in order to avoid any kind of conflict. So fawning is people pleasing and it's, it's being selfless. It's prioritizing the needs and wants of other people uh, over your own. And it, it can be a, a way of uh, just 
making sure that everyone likes you or you avoid you avoid any kind of tension or or whatever um so it's important to find a balance between being selfless and taking care of your own needs in order to have a sense of well-being because if you're always giving and giving and giving and giving and taking care of everybody else you're empty you're empty and you're depleted and then food can take care of you right food can fill the void so you take care of everybody else and food takes care of you so super important to find that balance like think about it like you know on an airplane you you've you've probably heard this metaphor before but flight attendants tell parents what to do if the oxygen masks drop and they tell parents put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you give it to your children because if you don't take care of yourself you can't make sure that anyone else is safe either so being selfless is putting your oxygen mask so to speak on everybody else and ignoring yourself you got to think about what your oxygen is and prioritize yourself that is super important just briefly um and some of the other myths are that self care is indulgent um that self care is expensive um that self care is time consuming or that it's a luxury so these are these are some of the other myths about self care that i will probably talk about in a later show because they are important and then um and then i'm going to talk about how to to cultivate emotional self care mental self care physical self care and spiritual self care and social self care see there, there are all these different kinds of self care because you know when we when we fill up on relationships when we take care of our own needs that's not selfish that's self care and when we do that we we are fulfilled and when we are fulfilled and we feel happy you know what you don't need food for for escape or to symbolically fill a void that is there because you're doing everything for everybody else except yourself right you matter too so that is our show for today thank you so much for joining me here on the binge cure with dr nina it really is possible to ditch dieting stop thinking about food 24/7 and banish binging for good so you can get back to living your life while being healthy i am here every thursday at noon pacific here on voice america and if you want a deeper dive into this topic and many more be sure to get your copy of my best selling book the binge cure seven steps to outsmart emotional eating it is available on amazon in all formats including audible if you want me to read it to you stay curious not critical and i'll see you next week thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the binge cure with dr nina each week she offers valuable insights to stop emotional eating and give steps to lead a joyous life tune in next thursday at 12 p.m. pacific time on the voice america health and wellness channel